to Campfire Fireside Chats. This show is created for adult audiences only. Our show notes include content warnings and other helpful information. We strongly recommend taking a moment to assess the situation before continuing. Let's begin. Welcome campers to this week's Fireside Chat. I'm going to run through a couple quick announcements and then we'll get to this week's guest. First off, Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. Choose the tier that best suits your preference and get access to exclusive and discounted merch, behind the scenes looks at the writing and editing process, and two weekly shows, Lights Out and Midweek Weird. We also have a few monthly shows coming down the pipe, so definitely stay tuned for that. In addition to all that, you also get uh, monthly swag bags, which are pretty cool. Stickers, buttons, etc. So what are you waiting for? Get over there. If you want the whole world to know that you're a diehard camper, go find the link in the episode's description or go through our link tree on all of our socials and check out our merch store. Stickers, t-shirts, hoodies, coffee mugs, fantastic designs from great artists like Jonathan Dodd and Easton Hawk. While you're in that link tree, tap on the Discord button and come join the community that we're building. Our Discord is a place where we can connect with all of you on a more personal level, so get over there and join the fun. And now, I am so excited to announce that this week's guest... I mean, you already know, you clicked on the thing. But it is none other than Fortean philosopher extraordinaire, Joshua Cutchin. To say that this guy has been prolific since his first book, Trojan Feast, in 2015, would be an understatement of criminal proportions. In the last seven years, he has penned a series of in-depth books on various aspects of paranormal phenomena. I'm not even going to list them all. Links to every one of them will be in the description. On top of his incredibly valuable insights, he's really just a great guy. You should absolutely support everything that he does. This week, we discussed his newest book, The Enormous and Deeply Profound Ecology of Souls. A truly exhaustive look at the connections between anomalous experience of all sorts and death. Now when I say exhaustive, I mean it. This thing is a legitimate tome. Something to be truly proud of, without a doubt. He's become a great friend, and hopefully this is the first of many appearances to come. And with that, let's just get into it. Alright, Josh. First of all, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm I'm super psyched for this. Well, it's it's a pleasure, and just from what little bit we shared with each other, I think that uh, that we're on the same page, and that it's going to yeah. be a great conversation. You know, if you can get past all that first order stuff, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes I do these interviews, and they're like, so so why do you think the aliens are coming here? And it's like, oh, okay, well, we have a lot of <laughs> we have a lot of groundwork to lay here, so right. yeah, got a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, um, a lot of a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, yeah that's right, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so I think, given the title of your book, I think it would only make sense to begin with the connections that you've made between psychedelics and the psychedelic experience and, you know, 14 experience. I mean, you know, in in some of my, again, more reductive hours, um, Mm -hmm. I kind of think it's the same thing, you know? Um, I'm, I'm definitely on the bandwagon that that some of these things happen, at least some of them happen in an altered state of consciousness. Um, the persistence of the theory that we might 
generate endogenous DMT in sufficient amounts to facilitate that uh, really does sort of push me further towards that inclination than I have otherwise. Which, of course, you know, as I'm sure you realize, but just for your uh, listeners' edification, doesn't mean that I'm saying that it's, you know, in your head. Right. Um, or, or even if it is in your head, that it's not objectively real and doesn't have some sort of objective reality going on. Um, but, you know, I just, I see so many things that sort of have pointed me in that direction over the years. Not the least of which is the fact that things like the alien abduction experience look a lot like shamanic initiations, as Eddie Bullard pointed out um, in his UFO abductions measure of a mystery back in like the 80s um Mm -hmm. like kenneth ring pointed out the similarities to the near-death experience in the 90s and uh you know a case can be made that they look like trips to fairyland and out-of-body experiences and um you know even some cryptid reports look that way you know i'm always fascinated by how people gloss over this not insubstantial amount of reports that have missing time like that's just something that (laughs) is wild but if you look they're not they're not incredibly hard to find and, you know, of course, the flesh and blood folks are like, well, it's infrasound. You know, Bigfoot's issuing these subsonic frequencies that are making you disoriented. But I'm like, OK, but that doesn't explain why, you know, you have four hours missing. So, yeah, I think that at least, you know, some of the time that's that's the level on which these things operate. I don't the the infrasound thing has never ma- made sense to me because I know for a fact that I don't lose 30 minutes every time I see tigers in the zoo. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's like, true. That's true. It's, well, and you know, I, I'm not aware of any body of folklore that says that, you know, people f- feel the same things around tigers that people right. report with Bigfoot. So, I mean, you know, and then there's also the way that the infrasound seems to be directed in some cases. You know, you'd think that it would be sort of omnidirectional, sure. but sometimes it's focused in one one singular direction. And just like it's become this catch-all for the flesh and blood Bigfoot community. Anything strange is, is infrasound. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's, a, it's a possible. Lot of, a yeah. lot of people, um, a lot of people who try to sort of explain these mysterious situations. The one that comes to mind is um, the Dyatlov Pass incident. Um, a lot of people who try to explain these things away immediately with, you know, what they would term as hard science, as infrasound is like it's an easy go-to. You know, because it, yeah, it does I mean, exist, and it's a thing they can point at. Well, it's it's kind of the same thing you can see happening when people talk about Persinger and the God Helmet. You know, the idea that low electromagnetic frequencies can cause hallucinations. And it's like, okay, sure. that's fine. But, like, you know, with something like, especially like the, the God Helmet, it never answers the question. I call it the key door fallacy, right? Or the key room fallacy. Just because a key grants access to a room. It doesn't mean that the contents of the room are inside the key. Right. <laughs> so right. like, you know, same, and same thing can be said with entheogens. Like, you know, the, while certain entheogens certainly have specific characters and specific imagery associated with them. I think it's a little bit of a folly to say like, Oh, well the reason that you saw, you know, Jaguars when you were taking ayahuasca is because that's just what everybody happens to hallucinate under ayahuasca. I, I would argue yeah. that it's somehow a lot more, you know, to use the dated term animistic, you know, the the, the ayahuasca is so closely tied to that region of the world that it's just the jaguars are like in in that realm, in that realm that it it takes you to. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, you know, you know, sort of back to your original question, like I've talked with my mentor, Greg Bishop about this a lot. And, you know, we, we both um, 
like a lot of Whitley Strieber's work. Uh, you know, Whitley's a controversial character. Um, yeah. But he's written elegantly about it. And, you know, I, if you've ever read his his pre-communion fiction output, like he he, he could craft a, a good narrative and communion is not that, you know, no. <laughs> none of his output yeah. since then has been that. So, like, I think Whitley believes something happened to him. But at the same time, like, I, if you had set up a camera in his bedroom in that cabin in Accord, New York on December 26, 1986, I don't know if you would have seen a little robot come in. I don't know if you would have seen a visitor peek its head behind the, uh, the, the door, like in the film version of communion. Like you might've just sure. seen Whitley sit up straight in bed and, and his eyes close over or something. And again, that doesn't mean that it's not, it doesn't have its own objective reality. It just means that it's not happening in this reality. Right. And it's, it's, a it's more a singular than that. You know, it, I think, I think the big, um, the big, one of the big turning points for me with UFO stuff was I kept account after account after account hearing experiencers describe the feeling that what they were seeing in the sky was also seeing them. I love, I, I love that. And, yeah. and that, that sort of like aspect of like mild telepathy gets glossed over in a lot of those like CE ones, you know? Yeah. Um, and uh, and what I don't think a lot of ufologists realize, and I've argued this on and off with different folks, and I don't think they quite understand, is that like once you in, once you inject that sort of like psi phenomenon into the experience, then like everything's back on the table now. Like you yep. know, and they'll say, "Well, no, the materialist paradigm still holds up," and I'm like, "No, no, no, you don't understand." Like if you have a black and white movie and you add green to all the scenes, it doesn't make it a full color movie. But it sure as heck ain't a black and white movie anymore, you know. Yeah, it's something fundam- It's something fundamentally different, and therefore, it opens up the questions as to there being other colors in the palette that you could add to that black and white movie. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great metaphor for it. It just it changes the entire complexion of what's going on there, right? It's when when an airliner flies over your house, you don't feel a connection with the pilot. You know, <laughs> yeah, like it's, exactly. That's not yeah. how that works. Um, well, you know, yeah, and it was really interesting because, like, there was this. Um, I was just at this conference at Missouri two weeks ago uh, that I was talking about, and, and I had the pleasure of meeting not only my my old friend uh, Micah Hanks, but meeting up with Tobias Wayland and his wife um, Emily, and uh, and also Ryan Sprague. And, and Ryan's uh, Ryan's presentation was on you know the the effects of UFOs on the witnesses. And I got into this sort of long conversation with Micah and Ryan about it on the airport drive home. Uh, you know, is, is that sort of profound life change that people experience after that? Is that because of some sort of external force that's being projected into their lives? Or is it just engendered by the majesty of the site? So like, you know, people, people see the grand Canyon and their perspective changes, but yeah. it doesn't mean that the grand Canyon has any agency. Right. But at the same time, like, you know, you don't see the grand Canyon with your friend, weep profoundly about it, drive home in silence and not talk about it for six years. You know, like that doesn't yeah. happen. That seems, that seems, or that seems a little bit different than what the normal human reaction would be to something like that. Just sheer majesty. You know, it seems a yeah. little bit different. What I mean, that that's another reoccurring theme is, um, and I'd love to know what you think about the fact that so many people have these experiences and they have these in the moment, these very extreme reactions. And then 
they'll just go silent. They just internalize it for sometimes decades. It happens a lot, doesn't it? I mean, you know, yeah. you see that in Bigfoot stories too. Um, yeah. And, you know, honestly, part of me can't help, again, since we're already on this topic, thinking about the way that if you don't really record your dreams right away, it's really easy to forget them by lunchtime. You know, if you right. don't record, if you don't record your trips right away, it's really easy to forget about them as well. Um, it's almost like there's a built-in lack of, of short-term memory that gets impressed on you when you have these experiences. And it kind of sounds like that in some of these cases with, with some cryptids and some UFO sightings. Yeah. Um, now again, um, since dreams operate that well, that way as well, you could say that there's some sort of mechanism that's not, you know, metaphysical that, that we have. Sure. Um, but man, some of these changes that these people have, these one eighties are just so profound just so profound. Um, that was something that Ryan's presentation did a good job of is like, you know, people will just sort of dive into full on eschatology or they will, um, you know, become vegans overnight stuff. And it's just like, it really does look like that, uh, (laughs) that road to Damascus experience more than anything else. You know, it really does. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's interesting. I don't, I, I have often asked experiencers that I've spoken with if the experience seems less or more impactful over time and it it seems to be a a grab bag some people experience it one way and some the other but i i wonder if it if it does fade and if that if it fades because of something something built into into the human you know experience you know, in, in my very limited experience, and you can fit my paranormal experiences really inside a thimble, but, um, you know, the things that I've had, they've tended to wane over time because, like, I start second-guessing myself and my right. own perception, and that's something that we were talking about, again, <laughs> uh, before we started recording, mm-hmm. about, you know, just trying to be an objectivist without being a skeptic, you know, so you yeah. want to prove something. You want you want to exhaust every possibility so that you can know that it was true and that yeah something genuinely anomalous happened. And, you know, I think about the night that I spent in uh, Waverly Hills Sanitarium back in two thousand and good lord, like nine or something. Yeah. And you know, each year it gets a little bit easier for me to say, did I really see that? Did I really experience that? But you know, in the immediacy of the moment, it was just like, you know, oh, this stuff's this stuff's real. Can't get yeah. away from it. You know, really. Yeah. Can't. When you're right in front of it, it's a lot harder to to pick it apart and question it. Right? Yeah, when you when you have a when you have a door in an abandoned tuberculosis hospital slam open in your face, it's like, yeah, yeah how do you you know? But then you but then you you know you sit sit back with it for over a decade, and you're like, well, was there maybe some sketchiness? Maybe did the owners put in a pneumatic, you know, a pneumatic sure. hydro, hydraulic arm or something behind it, or you know, was I was I just really hyped up? But at the same time, like. No, that that door slammed open in my face at the exact right mm-hmm. moment. So, that, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, that. So, your your book, Ecology of Souls. Yes. What I've really enjoyed so far is, I mean, the premise. Basically, I should I should let you, if, like, <laughs> just give like if you would just give the audience sort of the elevator pitch of what the what the book is. 
Well, I was always fascinated by two things, and number one is that Ann Streber quote. So in the wake of communion, she and Whitley were receiving a lot of letters. I get the impression that she was sort of acting as his personal assistant. So she was reading a lot of the experiencers' letters, and one of the observations that she made that he discovered you know, in their, in their office, he just looked at it one time, and said, this has something to do with what we call death referring to yes. the UFO experience. And then, you know, one of my most common, uh, you know, counterpoints to people pronouncing the extraterrestrial hypothesis is that, well, then why do people see dead loved ones during alien abductions or during periods yeah. of UFO contact, which, which happens quite a bit. Um, yeah. So I wanted to sort of like examine that question because people have, it's sort of my MO is to take something that people have flirted with here and there in the literature and say, okay, well, you, you de- you've devoted maybe up to a paragraph to this, but like, can we unpack this a little bit more? Um, yeah. Of course, you know, what thousand pages more. <laughs> yeah, just a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. Well, and that's what, I, that's what I discovered is that once you start trying to crack open that chestnut, um, you end up talking about everything. And yeah. I really didn't realize that would happen. Um, but, you know, I, I sort of knew that I'd need to talk a little bit about NDEs, but then I was like, no, NDEs and OBEs and ancient concepts of the soul and ancient, you know, figures that take us over that threshold of death, psychopomps. And, you know, shamanism has a lot of death, rebirth motifs going on. The fair, you know, the fairy folklore is chock full of death imagery. And then yeah. my surprise monuments and ley lines and all that stuff. And then you're ready to talk about UFOs. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah. So you didn't about- realize... You didn't realize no. how many tent poles you were going to have? Had no idea, and I didn't realize that what it would turn into was like um, a really holistic snapshot of how I sort of view the phenomena. These phenomena, this phenomenon, yeah. however you want to look at it right now. Um, but that's exactly what it's kind of become, and in some ways it feels like a capstone to this first sort of phase of what I've been doing. Um Partially because I don't want to write anything for a while after <laughs> writing that, um, but also because you. like, but also because it ended up being so comprehensive and and in a lot of ways so attractive to me the way it all sort of fit together um, that I just said you know let's just let this sit there for a while so yeah and and uh, you know the subtitle of the book Ecology of Souls a New Mythology of Death and the Paranormal is a little bit of a misnomer like death is sort of like the gateway. But it really is the souls part of that. That's, that's the right. focus. So it's about death, but you can't talk about death without talking about birth, and you can't talk about birth without talking about sexual reproduction and, and just the cycle of reincarnation in general, which sure. has a lot of go- a lot of stuff going for it. You know, I, th- I think yeah. people who are outside of the dis- this this these sort of areas don't realize like how how um, well attested to reincarnation is not only in like you know the lay literature, but um, but you know tenured academics writing about academic about reincarnation i'm thinking about you know ian stevenson and jim tucker yeah um the stuff they did at university of virginia which is good stuff like solid stuff so um that's kind of the elevator pitch i guess it was a long elevator yeah. ride but that's, that's, <laughs> that's I mean, the elevator pitch. no it, it it makes sense that a book this big would have you know would have a longer elevator pitch right it makes sense yeah well you know and that, that's something that, well the, the other thing that i kind of realized <sighs> I guess sort of in hindsight, but, um, you know, I've always been a big fan of, of Jacques Vallée, um, and sure. passport to Magonia is a touchstone for a lot of what, a lot of stuff that I do, because I've always been interested in the comparisons of, of, you know, fairies in general, Western European fairies, specifically to the UFO phenomena yeah. phenomenon. I, I'm trying to correct <laughs> myself because I sort of gloss over that some now sometimes nowadays, but like Vallée and passport to Magonia did a, such a good job of saying, 
the you know the UFO contact experience really resembles this fairy stuff, but there's something that haunts the background of that. And what's haunting the background of that is is that you know if you had if you look at the sort of the literature, the comparative literature that was happening when fairies were believed in, they were kind of doing the same thing that Valet's doing, but with fairies and the dead. So yeah. if you extend that transitive property, if you know yep. you can compare the dead to fairies, you can compare the fairies to to these aliens nowadays, quote unquote, yeah. then it would seem that, that yes, there is something to do with what we call death. See, and that's why that's one of the things I really love about what you've done here is <clears throat> you've kind of you've taken all of these like landmark notions, like passport to Magonia, like the work with connecting NDEs to these experiences, the work to you know connecting um, psychedelics to this, and you've sort of gone like. Let's go one step further. Like push it, push it back one more layer, you know. Um, and I think that I find that really attractive too. Well, I, I, I think I, I really appreciate it. I really yeah. appreciate it. I um, think, and I know I've heard you talk about how um, you're a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. It's yeah, and I I also have like a, a pretty deep religious life, and I think one of the things I find so attractive about this is um, it sort of helps me reconcile the two things. You know, it, it really does. Yeah. yeah. Um, and in some ways, so to your first point, yeah, I think that I wrestled with that a lot in the beginning because a lot of people who are familiar with the work of Eddie Bullard or Kenneth Ring um, or even, you know, Graham Hancock and Terrence McKenna are going to be like, well, yeah, these connections have been made. But again, it's, it's that, it's that, okay, well, let's follow this all the way. <clears throat> yeah. You know, let's follow this all the way. Let's use sort of, you know, the logical transitive property. And what does this tell us? It's, it, it seems like these things bring us to, to a threshold of some sort. Um, yeah. But it's really interesting that you said that, and it really does warm my heart. Um, <clears throat> I think that the book will read differently on a second reading. If people go into that second reading, knowing that a lot of this was me trying to figure this out for myself. Like, you know, it's right. part of the reason that I self published is because like, this is, this is like Josh's not really therapy session. I don't know what I'm trying to, trying to, trying to, uh, Josh's attempt at closure, Josh's attempt at like sort of trying to thread that needle between my interests and my own faith. And I, I think I've done it for my purposes. And if it, if it, if it does it for other people's purposes, that's just icing on the cake. But, um, you know, I, I can't deny some of these experiences that people have had, but, um, you know, I also have a, have a strong conviction towards my faith. So again, how do you sort of, how do you sort of make those things play nice together? Yeah. And, and, you know, that's what, that's what the afterward is, is basically like, this is kind of where I am with my faith. Um, but like you can kind of once you know that you can kind of see me doing that the entire way like well if you know without getting to you know happy clappy christian which i think a lot of this stuff has a tendency to teeter into you know oh sure. well it's just it's just aliens and demons let's be done with it but you know yeah someone's pointed out something really interesting to me that i hadn't really considered i guess i knew it but i didn't really consider it until 2 weeks ago but somebody came up to my, to me at the uh the Missouri conference that I was at and said you know it's really interesting like a lot of our con- conceptions um you know, in the Christian faith about the afterlife are really kind of just fan fiction from Dante and Chaucer. Like, yeah, they really are. Cause the, the, you know, the Bible speaking in metaphors about this and it's kind of vague about what happens not only 
at that transition point, which is the main focus of, of Ecology of Souls, but also like what happens after that as well. So, you know, um, that, that's, that's, that's probably if I had to really distill the way that I reconciled it, it was, it was just, it was that basic factor. Like I can preserve the aspects of my faith while still realizing that the mechanism and the destination are quite vague and that we can approach yeah. those with the best firsthand evidence that we have. Which, yeah. in my opinion, does seem to, in a lot of ways, point to this having something to do with what we call death. Yeah, I, I think, um, and there's there's nothing more fundamental to the human condition than life and death, right? Birth and death. That's that. There's nothing more human than that. And I think that it's really like it's really comforting. I think I, I find it very comforting to to think that these these experiences are sort of a a sign of the connection that we all share i I would i would agree that i would agree with that you know because it's something that terence mckenna talked about a lot which was you know the the psychedelic experience is perhaps a birthright of all of us you know and yeah and um and you can sort of find vestiges of this in the ufo stuff like a lot of that Betty Andreas and stuff that Ray, Ray Fowler talked about was very much about like we will all experience the same thing that Betty experienced going through this door and meeting the one consciousness. In fact, yeah. I believe that the Andreas and stuff was what tipped Raymond Fowler over from being a, an ETHer into somebody who's actually willing to address this sort of stuff. But um, yeah, I think so. But uh, it's you know, my wife has been giving me grief for the past couple of months. She's like, who wants to read a book about death? And I'm like, well, I, I get it. But like, I, that was my takeaway while writing it. Like it, I ended up being more reassured and more comforted by it than anything. And I just saw someone on uh, Instagram today who sort of was halfway through and said the same thing. Like they find it yeah. to be more reassuring than anything else because it, it, it does imply that so- something is looking out for us <laughs> in a lot of yeah. ways. I mean, I think it's easy to, it's easy to, to think about it like that like who would want to read a book about death but anything about death is about life you know it's i mean your book is sort of like the like drawing the death tarot card right it's not about death it's about transition and rebirth and and all these all the positive things that come from navigating those liminal spaces that's that's a great way to put it um and i hadn't really considered it until now so thank you for for putting that in my mind because i'm probably yeah. gonna have to trot that out in the future <laughs> for myself yeah that, that's an excellent way to put it and um you know and 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 you see this too in these phenomena these these phenomena um that there is that current refrain that i address in the book that die to death refrain you know yeah um you see that in trips you see it in near-death experiences you see it in the alien abduction scenario most yeah. often those those three things and it's this idea of like move past that fear so that you can you know not only better those around you and yourself in this life but you know perhaps even better yourself in wherever you wind up next you know? yeah and i think anyone who's had a, a profound psychedelic experience you know you often hear you often hear the term ego death you hear you know you hear descriptions of having you know the facade the the person you've built in in this reality sort of picked apart into tiny pieces and reassembled and you know all this imagery that they say everything except death itself you know what i mean like it's 
all these allusions to death. And I've always I've always had the feeling that like maybe you're really just getting brushed up against the veil. You know what I mean? Like you're just yeah. right there. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, that uh, that um I think that's a that's a good point to make. It's it's almost like all the allusions to death without denying your eternal nature, right? right. <laughs> so it's like yeah. everything that you thought, everything that you think death is, it still is. But there's something about you that that endures. And again, that puts me in the mind of Saint Terry of McKenna, um, who claimed to have put a quote unquote high ranking uh, Buddhist uh, monk onto DMT, like right. uh, got him hip to it and, and said that, you know, the monk told him and said, that, you know, that's, that's as close as you can get without passing the point of no return. Um, right. So uh, McKenna started calling, you know, the bungee into the bardo. <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, man, that guy but, can turn know, a phrase. He really, he really could. Uh, you know, yeah. I, I, I make it a point like once a year to like, just listen to three or four lectures of his just to see yeah. how I see how I hear him differently because I, as as my journey goes, I, I I hear him differently. But um yeah, but yeah, and, and of course that's where you know ecology of souls comes from. I, I I'm not sure if he originated the term, but I think that he might have. Um, which is when you know he was speculating that it might be the DMT realm specifically might be you know an, an ecology of souls. Um yeah, but yeah, it, it does seem to be that threshold thing, and just in the same way that um this sort of death connection sort of sits in the background of passport to Magonia. It kind of sits in the background of, of uh, George P. Hansen's work, you know, the trickster and the paranormal, because he's all right. talking about liminality and, and, you know, trickster guides. And it's like, well, what's more liminal than that, that transition. And then a yeah. lot of these trickster guides, or at least some of these trickster guides were also psychopomps, you yes. know, Hermes that yeah. were tasked with, tasked with bringing you across that barrier. And Hermes, who was just another great symbol of, you know, um, psychology in general, which is, has its own birth death imagery all wrapped up in it. Yeah. I'm, I, yeah, I was going to bring that up is like the overlap, right. In the Venn diagram of tricksters and psychopomps, there's quite a bit of overlap there. Um, they sort of go hand in hand. Yeah, th they do. And, and I think it's all about that, that idea of being the, the deity of, of the threshold. But then again, you know, the, the, the sort of sexual transgression that you see in a lot of these trickster figures, it's it's hard for me to think about sexuality without thinking about death now, you know. Sure. Like, you know the petite mort, you know. Um, yeah. And uh, and you know this is something that 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 Jeffrey Kripal talked about um, in his book with Whitley um, Kripal, who was kind enough to uh, to offer an endorsement of the book. Um, you know, the, the you you start to look at uh, sex and death being opposite sides of the coin. And I think that provides some insight as to why these phenomena are so sex obsessed. You know, if they somehow yeah. have to do with this this cycle that we go through, then of course they would be, you know, obsessed with with sexuality. Yeah, that yeah, that makes a lot of sense. One of the things, you know, speaking about uh, psychopomps and um, sort of Grecian mythology and history, one of the things that I found really like a connection that really impressed me was the connection you made between the the after effects of of these experiences and the seers they're sort of um cuz the the seers were known for for remembering their past lives right mm -hmm. they retained the knowledge and that sort of goes hand in hand with having these experiences and having these brushes with you know what might be death 
and yeah, that how that knowledge sort of manifests as psi abilities. It's it's and, super interesting to me. Um, so yeah, the, the the seers were always said to have either um, rejected the the draft of forgetfulness, lethe, or or you know not passing over the planes of forgetfulness or whatever it was. And you right. find these sort of like these sort of uh, forgetful brews in a lot of different cosmologies, including like you know China and stuff. Yeah. Um, and you know in the years often come back with psi abilities and I think it's interesting that the people who don't have near-death experiences don't come back with psi abilities you know it kind yeah. of is it's a nice little parallel there and I don't know if like you know our, our forebears were describing something real or they were just making observations but um, it definitely seems to to, to to align with that and that's the thing that, that you just sort of can't I, I, I found a hard time pushing past is you know same thing can be said with shamans. Like the the point is they remember. Like they they enter into yeah. they sort of voluntarily enter into a symbolic or you know literal, depending on the level of initiation, um, death experience, near death experience. And they the point is to remember and come back so that you right. have these powers and they keep it with uh, them. I'll be damned if alien abductees don't have the same things happen. You know. Um, yeah. You now the the cryptid thing is always a little bit of a miss of a, of an awkward puzzle piece to fit in because, uh, that doesn't happen as often. Uh, yeah. there's a couple examples here and there, but that doesn't happen as often with the cryptid stuff happened all the time with the fairy stuff. Um, yeah. you know, they they come back and they become priests or, you know, in the famous case that I mentioned in a couple of books, but including this one of, uh, Anne Jeffries, uh, Cornish girl who was taken to fairyland, which of course meant that she was in a trance state because that's what sure. that often meant. And came back from Fairyland, she claimed, but was you know treated as a, a seer and a, a faith healer and whatnot for, for years thereafter. So, yeah, it definitely seems like there's this constant idea of like you know the retention of memory is like you've been sort of given the well, it's it's an initiation really is what it is, yeah. regardless of whether it's it's explicitly that or not. Do you think maybe there's there's a connection between the sort of timelessness? of these experiences and maybe a, a supposed wisdom that these people are assumed to have after. Like, I know it's, it's often with fairy mythology, especially with, with the fairy lore, they talk about how maybe you're gone for an afternoon in this reality, but it's a hundred years and, you know, but yeah. it, it's always seemed timeless, like a timeless quality to these experiences. I mean, so so is what you're driving at sort of the idea that they have been untethered from time, so that they they have access to knowledge on you know both forwards and backwards, or you know to use some new age theosophic sort of terminology, they have access to that akashic record. Right. It could be yeah. that, or it, it could be literal, like um, the wisdom that comes with age. You know, if the, if you spend a oh, yeah. hundred years in fairyland, then of course, you're going to gain, you know, the wisdom of having lived a hundred years, right? I, I hadn't really considered that, but that's interesting, um, because you know, time dilation is a factor in most of these. Um, one mm -hmm. of the things that I, I tried to, I, one of the things I set out to do would, was to say, okay, well, how many you know missing time ghost stories are there? Ain't a lot, you know, yeah. ain't a lot. Um, and right up there ghost, with tigers, <laughs> right up there with <laughs> tigers, yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I think that maybe that uh, is... Um, I think that maybe there, 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 there's something to that. You're right. Um, yeah, I, I had not considered that. I, You know, just timelessness in general, I had thought about engaging with the whole wibbly-wobbly, timey-wimey thing. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it, it, the damn book's long enough as it is. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I, I mean, I would love to... I would love to see someone dive into you know the connections between time and all this like sort of the way you did with food and in your first book yeah um well you know that's always been my hope um whenever i do any of these books is that like somebody will do with my work what i've done with the work of others is to say okay well he glossed over this one thing in a paragraph let's unpack it um so far, I don't think anybody's done that, but they're, they're you know they're they're welcome to. Um, yeah, and you know we're maybe, all standing yeah. on the shoulders of giants, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. So you know may, may, maybe they will. Um, I, I think that it's difficult to walk away from from ecology of souls and not realize that we have a complete misunderstanding of what time is. You know? Yeah, I mean there there's there's something to it, um, but you know I have no idea. But but yeah, there's and I think that really ties into somehow the cyclicality of reincarnation and the cyclicality of time there's yeah. some there's something there's something there that i'm just not i'm i, I don't think i have the presence of mind to dissect <laughs> you know sure um yeah but you know I, I guess maybe like a complete reading would would be to read ecology of souls and also eric wargo's time loops you know <laughs> yeah maybe, okay. maybe that might give you maybe, maybe that might provide some additional insight but like the time stuff even time travel movies always just mess me up at the head yeah it's it's a lot. It's a lot to to process all together, you know. It's and I think that that speaks to its effect on these these um situations, this phenomena is like the that timelessness is so it's incomprehensible. Right? The yeah. the concept of being without time is not something that we're even capable of wrapping our minds around. And I think that's why it's so that's why it has such a significant effect on people who experience it. Yeah. And I suspect that like, you know, all of reality is probably just as incomprehensible. We just have these evolutionary adaptations to, to, to allow us to not turn into a quivering heap. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, uh, I, I, I suspect that something like that's going on as well. Yeah. Just these, these little, you know, things we've developed, over millennia just to be able to handle little bits of it at a time you know and yeah i mean that's 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 really our true superpower as a species is just our adaptability yeah you know I, i'm not even sure it's our intelligence it's just the way that we find a way to <laughs> to make things work you know <laughs> yeah absolutely um i wanted to ask you about the the component of fear in all this because so many of these these situations, these um, experiences that people have, are c- accompanied by fear, right? And I think that's that's also common with with death in general. The way we perceive death, a lot of fear is attached to that, and I think that that's another big thread that connects them all. Yeah, and it's just that I think it's that that, that fear of the unknown is just the most powerful thing. Um, you know, I, I I perceive something halfway through Ecology of Souls that I it's another reason that the book is so long because 
I started to notice that I was sort of tending towards love and light a bit too much. And, uh, you know, and it's, it's, it's easy to do when you're talking about like, you know, a lot of these spiritual ideas and such. Yeah. Um, so like, you know, I, I, I took, did take a step back in a couple of points and be like, okay, well, obviously this is not great for everyone. You know? Right. Right. Um, although I have a hard time believing it's not, you know, not the experiencer's fault. Yeah, I, I I'm very hesitant to shame the experiencer for the way that they feel. You know, that's not something yes. I, I do. Um, but it might be our fault, just as a, as a species, that we can't realize, you know, how beneficial fear can be, or how beneficial what's happening to us can be. You know, right. I mean, sort of, a, it's sort of a tired example, but you know, think kids at the pediatrician or. The, uh, animals at the at the vet, you know, it's, sure. it's a terrifying experience, but it is it is for your own good. Um, at the same time, that kind of feels wrong because it feels like there's some ulterior motive that could easily be at play, right? So, um, you know, I, I think that it's part of the reason that I was sort of drawn to the idea of an ecology of souls because it implies a, a real diversity of of you know, I mean, let's call it what it is, really, in a lot of ways, spirit phenomena. Um, sure. It, it implies a diversity of that, but it also implies sort of uh, the ambivalence that you'd find in a food chain, right? You know, I mean, a, a shark yeah. doesn't hate you, but it's going to do what it does. Yeah. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So you know, I think that's something to consider as well. But also, man, the, again, I keep coming back to this idea that if you look at somebody like you know the work of Carl Jung and how like facing and embracing and conquering fear and the unknown and you know, more specifically like the shadow self is like one of the best things that you can do for yourself. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, you know, it's the people who don't have to, or don't have the opportunity to, or don't have the courage to face that are the ones who are living an impoverished life, you know? Okay. So it's, it, it, it really is, it really ends up being sort of a fine line to thread, but you know, I think we have to be completely open and say, well, a lot of these tend to have a lot of these things, the spiritual component tend towards the positive, I think, and might even be positive without us realizing it. But I think there are some things that are a little bit more predatory that are out. Yeah. Okay. 100%. Yeah. I can see that. So you think maybe the, um, the fear that people experience during these are just maybe a, a smaller representation of, of humanity's tendency toward resistance when it comes to transition, when it comes to, you know, these, these big changes, right? Because that's, that that's a, sort of a theme in humanity over history is this resistance to change that. And as you know, you alluded to again in our pre-talk set and setting, right. You know, I mean, yeah, yeah. we, we have so much to fear, um, that, and, and so much that we're not, uh, satisfied with within ourselves. Yeah. That I think that that makes an easy target for amplification. In yeah. Some ways. Um, we also have, you know, an ex- any experiencer today is dealing with six, seven decades of pop culture that has turned <laughs> these things into monsters. You yeah, know, uh, yeah, a hundred percent. And uh, and you know, a lot of the p- there's some good pop culture out there, but it, the the topic is too complex to really get across well in pop culture. I think. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um. And so you know. I, I think that definitely has has cut colors a lot of these experiences. I mean, and, and I think just more broadly speaking, like the way that we perceive these things in general isn't 
almost not entirely a cultural construct, but like the cultural constructs are definitely playing a role. I mean, you can just yeah. look at sort of you can look sort of like the entities that have been reported and how they come in waves and how you know. Yep. As soon as people, as soon as the graves become popular, everybody starts seeing graves. You know. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's definitely a part of it too, and that's at the end of the day, if this is somehow external to us, which I'm not, I'm not convinced it is. Right. Know? And if it is somehow internally generated, um, which is an idea that I don't like, because come on, we all want there to be critters, right? We all want there, sure. we all want there to be creatures. But like, you know, if, if you're dealing with the ecology of, of souls, then you've sort of got to look at these ideas like of polypsychism and these ideas that like an aspect of yourself might be what you're facing down. Yeah. And indeed, you know, this is something that a lot of people have talked about. So like, yeah, if, if that sort of uh, clarifies the idea of something like set and setting, when married with these negative pop culture tropes would definitely be a pants shittingly terrifying yes. experience. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I think I, I mean, I'm in the camp of, I, I like the idea that it's sort of a mixture of the two. I know. Um, I think it's Greg Bishop who talks about, um, co- the concept of co-creation, right? That, that idea that it's, at least part of what we're experiencing is our own perception blended with the other. Right. 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 And, uh, I, I'm not sure if even Greg has decided whether it's, um, whether it's the other intelligence rifling through the Rolodex of our brains and coming up with something that fits, or if it's like a more, a more benign version of the Lovecraftian incomprehensible horror, right. you know, if it's yes. like, or if we're just doing it and saying, I don't know what to make of this. So I'm going to make it into, into this thing. Um, I'm not sure where that really falls. Um, per- personally, I'm, I'm not convinced that it isn't just a natural mechanism of the human condition. Yeah. You know, you know that's, that, that's, that's something that I suspect too. Um, I mean, I, I think the way that our expectations color our experiences is is yeah. readily evident. You know, I mean, like, again, sort of the pithy and tired sort of example, but like when somebody gives you a spoonful of something that you're not expecting, you're expecting it to be one thing and it's another thing. Like, you know, they yeah. give you, you know, chocolate sauce when you were expecting marinara. And it's like, what? for a minute, you're like, what the hell is this awful thing? Yeah. So, so yeah, I think that could be part of it, too. Um you know, the idea that I've played with a little bit is that, um, again, something else that we had addressed before we pushed record um, was the idea that, like, the, the pure naked form of this thing, if it is indeed one thing, but and I suspect it is, but that's neither here nor there. Yeah. You know, these, these anomalous lights are seen by so many different people in so many different contexts, but, you know, they're seen in places of heavy Bigfoot activity, and they're seen in haunted houses, and they're seen in you know, the alien abduction experience, and this and that and the other. Yeah. I kind of wonder if that's not, like, you know, the purely... The, the purest form of whatever this is. And then, you know, light. The soul. The soul, which, you know, you, you do see that description time and sure. again in a lot of different, you know, not only indigenous cosmologies, but in early Christianity, the, the idea of the soul as an orb of light. Near-death experiencers describe themselves as turning into a ball of light. Uh, meditators yep. describe the same thing. Um, and that somehow this light doesn't act on a specific spectrum that triggers that endogenous DMT release. And then then it has access to our hard drives. You know? Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah I, I, I wonder. Completely untestable. We'll probably never know if that's sure. the case, but it's but it's something I think worth considering. That you know, these things don't look like anything until until you're there. If 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 a tree falls in the wood and then no one's around to hear it, you know, you're out of luck. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean I think people overlook they overlook these these lights. They talk about them a lot, but I don't see a lot of people talking about. The fact that they're just so they're ubiquitous, you know, across all of this. Um, but for some reason, when you see an orb in an old house, it's a ghost, and when you see an orb in the sky, it's an alien, right? Yeah, and and, and I mean that's a similar argument that I would make with you know poltergeist phenomena as well, you know, yeah. which I which I talked about in, in footprints is like you know well the only reason that you're saying this is Bigfoot is because you know in those Class B reports where you don't see an actual Sasquatch yeah. the only reason that you're saying the stones thrown at you and the knocks in the forest and the footprints and the noises and the voices are Bigfoot is because you're in the woods like if yeah. this happened in a house it'd be a poltergeist like it totally yeah. would yeah. Um, which again sus- makes me suspect that like a lot of these things poltergeist activity just comes with the package um, but uh, it, it would be a worthwhile project and I don't think I could do it because it would probably be even longer than ecology and nobody wants to read that. Right. <laughs> but it would be a worthwhile project to look at how li- not only that, how lights behave, these anomalous lights behave in UFO cases versus hauntings versus, you know, when they're seen in he- areas of heavy Bigfoot activity to see if they behave any differently, to see if they're described any differently. I suspect that they're not. Yeah. Um, and then to say, you know, and to try to draw some conclusions from that, um, you know, that, I think that'll be a worthwhile endeavor. Um, but again, I think it would just be a huge, like, gigantic project. I mean, yeah. it could be someone's life work, really, in a lot of ways. First off, I would sign up to read that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I would too. You know, it's, yeah, yeah. But but yeah. you know, I, I think my tastes are a little bit different than a lot of people's. That was something I wrestled with with Ecology of Souls too. Is like I kept on reading this, writing it. And I'm like anybody going to want to read this? And I was like, well, I would want to read this. So that was sort of my guiding. Yeah. Like if I yeah. would want to read it, then somebody else will want to read it. So. That's, I mean, it, it reads like a passion project. And I think that's why that's one of the reasons I enjoyed, I enjoyed the experience. I'm enjoying the experience so much because it, it really feels like, like sort of your like love letter to the universe, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and, and, and again, you know, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but like that's that's part of the reason that I went the self publishing route. It's not that I haven't had great relationships with some publishers, but um You didn't you want know, a bunch I, of hands in it. I didn't want exactly. I didn't want a yeah. bunch of hands in it. Like this is this is exactly what I wanted it to be. And if it turns out to be, you know, like the director that's given an unlimited budget and he blows it all on something that no one likes that he's <laughs> happy with, then so be it. But yeah. Yeah. I, wanted, yeah. I mean, I'd rather rather go out like that than have you know something this meaningful out there in a in a shape that you don't approve of. You know what I mean? Well, it's just like with movies, man. The the interesting failures, the interesting personal failures, are always more interesting or always more compelling for me than the committee designed. Sure. You know. Yep. The formulaic, tightly produced, or like music yeah. too, right? Like music's yeah, the same exactly. way. Yeah. 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 Okay, so. Obviously, these these concepts get some resistance from the you know yeah. mainstream. And it's funny to use. It's funny. I always laugh at myself for using the term mainstream within you know such a niche community already. Um, but every subculture has subcultures, right? So um, it's true. Do you think that resistance? I I often find myself um, seeing this resistance and thinking. Like, 
these these people just don't want a red, like a reduced they see it as a reduction of everything to sort of one thing that they'll have to talk about over and over again no matter what they're questioned about they'll have to come back to this one you know source point I think people like to talk about like well there are aliens here we can talk about there are ghosts here we can talk about you know what I mean and yeah, to yeah. sort of tie all those threads together I feel like it kind of terrifies a lot of those people. Well, it, it's it's that, and it's also, um, you know, and this you see this in every single discipline. It's, it's this idea of oh, I've built a body of work on this one idea, and if it's if it's different than that, then my life's work has been invalidated. And that's not sure. the case. It's not. It's never the case because what you've contributed informs the the Hegelian synthesis that comes out of that dialogue, right? Yes. Um. So that's. But you're right, that, that, is, that is part of it. And there's also the religious impulse that I think that people, you know, have, that, that manifests, you know. Even if yeah. you have an atheist ufologist, they still have an atheist impulse towards, yeah. you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis of that yeah, sort of thing. Material, material, right? Material, material. So I think that's part of it, too. Um, but, you know, so so Gregory Shushan, who... Um, who uh, informed a lot of the book has written some great stuff on near death comparative near death experiences and in indigenous cultures and also ancient world cultures. Um, I said something in the, the forward to his, one of his books that I thought was really interesting was that, you know, a lot of times people who are Forteans or people who are, you know, looking for these doing the comparative yeah. folklore comparative thing, uh, get accused of cherry picking, but he's like, that's the point. Like you would expect manifold differences. So that makes the, the similarities all the more compelling. Yeah. And I think that people will latch on, but people do sort of latch on and, and amplify those, those differences. Um, in, 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 I think sometimes what can be an unhealthy way. Um, you know, at the same time, like I get what you're saying about people being sort of hesitant to, to, to look at these topics from this angle, but, um, you know, I've been getting a lot of good feedback on Ecology of Souls, and I think that if this had come out 20 years ago, I don't think people would be as willing. You know, like Even in the time yeah. that I've been involved in this field, which really hasn't been that long, um, you know, Trojan Feast was 2015. Um, yeah. Uh, I've seen the community, the UFO community, really move towards um, towards embracing the altered states of consciousness idea. Now, I think it's yeah. really interesting that as the community moves towards that, that, all of a sudden you've got all this military skullduggery that comes out and yes. says, no, it's, it's aliens and sort of recorrects that, uh, that, that window yeah. of that framework as the pendulum um, swings, right? as, as the pendulum yeah. swings. So like, you know, the, 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 the kids who are the last ones to catch on to this are the cryptozoology kids and, you know, yes. God, God yeah. love them. I do. Um, <laughs> yeah. but, but you know, they, they have this, they have this sort of, mentality where they want to sit at you know the table with all the cool cool scientist kids and i just don't think that's going to be worthwhile i had had a really yeah. interesting conversation with them with ken gerhard who is an absolute sweetheart and we had some yeah. great conversations um but he's very much like you know flesh and blood bigfoot kind oh, yeah. of guy and uh but he he had a presentation where he talked about 30 of a thousand uh bigfoot cases uh, as uh examined by janet and colin board had paranormal elements so I have some questions about that to begin with. Um, yeah. You know, how good was the data going into that? How many of the things that sound paranormal when you 
critically examine them have been explained away by cryptozoologists as not being paranormal, so they get lumped into that 970 yeah. as opposed to that 30. But, I, <laughs> but, at the, but at the end of the day, the simplest way that I put it is I looked at Ken and I said, okay, 30 out of 1,000 Bigfoot reports have something paranormal. I said, how many how many paranormal grizzly bear stories you got? You know? Yeah. Um, and, and I just, I wish that cryptozoology could just look at the altered states of consciousness thing because I think it's going to, not in every case, you know, there's some very good cryptids out there that I think could be, you know, quote unquote, real flesh and blood. But I think sure. that there's, there's this wealth of, of interpretation that's being left on the table because they're so married to that colonialist yeah. 19th century oh, kill man. it, bag it, tag it sort of, yeah. <laughs> sort of idea. Yeah. 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 I, yeah, I struggle with that a lot for sure. Um, there's, there's just so much there. There's, you know, the, the involvement of like Jungian archetypes. There's, you know, there, the separation between what the myth is and that the myth exists separately from even if, okay. So you constantly hear cryptozoologists citing like the mountain gorilla, Right, that it was, yeah, yeah, you know, that it was a uh, cryptid before it was cataloged, and or I think pandas, there are all these myths know, about way. it, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But the the myth, the mythological version of of the animal, to me, exists separately from what from the actual flesh and blood animal that inspires the mythology. If does yes. that make sense? It makes like, it makes it makes a ton of sense, and it also implies like that there's sort of a dualism that we're not recognizing in a lot yes. of this. Um, you know, a good example are the animal psychopomps that I talk about in the book. You know, yeah. I I will never say that horses are magical. You know, <laughs> they're, sure. they're they're horses for Pete's sake. Same thing with owls. Same thing with you know um, dogs. Yeah. But at the same time, they have always been known to operate on this higher level. You know. I don't know if you want to call that an egregore. I don't know if you want to call that, you know, symbolism or a reified metaphor, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. There's the flesh and blood creature. And there's also the, the mythological version of the creature that fulfills some, some very specific functions. Yeah. And I think it's, it's this, you know, I mean, who knows? Maybe it's the body of the horse versus the soul of the horse. You know, maybe sure. horses souls actually do <laughs> all carry us into the afterlife. I don't know, right. but you know, it's just, yeah. And, and the thing, the other thing that I think gets critically, um, uh, critically misinterpreted or cr critically overlooked is that you can't extract yourself in a lot of ways from mythology. Like you're, you're embedded yeah. within it. Yep. And and I I, I, I kind of mean that just in terms of the way that you think, but also like almost in like a hyperstition sort of way. Like yeah, you know, as, as long as people believe certain things, certain things will be true. Yeah, I mean perception is reality, right? I mean we're we're building it, and you can't escape the influence of these mythologies that have walked hand in hand with humanity since the beginning of time. Right? Yeah, you, I mean, you can't they're, they're, ba they're baked in. At, they're baked in at this point, you know. Yeah, which is, which is why, like, I mean, which is why, which is why I like arch archetypes in general so much is because, yeah. it, like, it allows you to take a look at something that you don't have any idea what culture it came from or what the symbolism is or or you know anything, but it gives you a foot in the door to try to start decoding it. You know, right? 
Oh, it gives you the slightest like, hint to a frame of reference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, so this looks like the womb of the mother, or this or that, you know, or this looks like, you know, uh, there's the sun, which is sort of a rebirth symbol, so maybe it's trying to bring that in, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Um, and then, of course, you know, once you once you start looking at, you know, the literature and, you know, again, pop culture, mm-hmm. you see that these things make their way into media. And I don't think people realize that they're doing it. You know, yeah. a good example that completely, a good example that completely flew over my radar. I didn't even think about it until somebody pointed it out is that, you know, I make an argument at one point in the book, <laughs> and I don't mean this literally, but like the horse is the sun is a UFO. Right. And, and the, sure. the line of logic is that there's an obvious horse, sun, solar connotation, royalty, horses you know carry the chariot of the sun in various uh various mythologies mm-hmm. and the sun is a glowing identified object but it's a glowing aerial disc so you can sort of say horse ufo and there's some connections between horses and ufos that i explore and yeah. i'll be damned you know ecology of soul comes out and a couple of weeks later we've got nope yeah and and the family is dealing with horses <laughs> and like <laughs> yeah you know maybe maybe that's sheer coincidence but it, it's 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 really interesting to me that like those two things are really prominent in that film you know yeah i i don't i don't think it's coincidence at all i think those those things like like we said are baked into humanity i think they're they reoccur in every culture across the world for a reason right yeah and and you can't you you can't you can't keep them out and this is something that i talk about this is something that i talk about in the forward because uh you know again this is sort of me trying to work through a lot of this stuff I've long been aware of the connections between Osiris and Odin and Christ. Like, and I think sure. it's, I think it's a very narrow-minded Christian that says, "Oh, well, those were planted by the devil because they're trying yeah, to yeah. take you." You know, it's it's like, no, let's let's actually try to engage with this from an honest standpoint. And I, I saw a snarky, um, snarky YouTube video that popped up that was making these comparisons, which is like, you know sophomore level bong rip like yeah we all know yeah, this yeah. but anyway they were they were saying like you know oh well if you know the christ story borrowed from all these other mythologies and true stories don't borrow from other stories and i, and I thought <laughs> to myself okay and i thought to myself that's that, that that's that's correct but the truest story the archetypal story will just manifest on its own and it manifests in people's personal lives too whether they realize it or not yeah absolutely i think um i don't know that that's a that's a tough statement for me. True stories don't borrow from other stories. I think the borrowing I think true stories don't intentionally borrow from other stories. But I think you know everyone's perception is affected by what they've taken in, right? And I think the borrowing right. happens whether we like it or not. Oh, yeah, 100%. And um I think that some of the best stories that endure are the ones that do have that sort of internal archetypal logic like I, i've yeah. been did you happen to catch um raised by wolves on hbo max no i haven't i've heard so many people talk about it but i i haven't <sighs> well it's unfortunately been prematurely um terminated but uh. um they did come out with two seasons and it's it's a real gnostic kind of uh union kind of show but what i liked about it or what i found fascinating about it because I have plenty of complaints, but like on the basic plot level, a lot of it didn't make any damn sense to me. And I'm sure that, you know, if they'd had the chance to finish the entire series, they might've answered some mystery questions, some questions in that mystery box sort of way. But from an archetypal standpoint and looking for these motifs and stuff, it like it, it fit together perfectly. You know what I mean? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, and 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 uh, and I think that's a that's a pretty good example of something that might, you know, when you're watching something, you're like, I'm not sure if I understand this, but I, I know it makes sense, and yeah. that's something that I that I really find fascinating, and I think that happens. I think mean, it's a good way to approach art, but it probably is really a good way to approach your life in a lot of ways too. You know? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like I don't know this story, but I can feel it. Yeah, yeah. Or, or like you know, uh, like I've said about some films, like I didn't enjoy it, but I appreciated it. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so before before we wrap this up, can you? Um, just let the audience know where to find everything what like what to i mean if you have appearances that they can look forward to what whatever just plug everything well uh so i I guess i'll begin with the uh the the book itself because navigating it is actually a little trickier than i had intended (laughs) and this will i'll provide a fun anecdote here in the middle of it um You'll see four ecologies of souls <laughs> on on Amazon, and unfortunately, it's just available for Amazon. If you want to self-publish, it's like the most efficient, yeah. best way to. It's, it the the back end of it is really great. I can't say anything other than that. You know, I wish it wasn't Amazon, but here we are. You know, yeah. Um. So if you type in ecology of souls, you'll find four things. <laughs> um, you'll find an ebook which contains volumes one and two, and that's that's the by far, far and away, the most cost-effective method for getting it. Um, you will find a print book of Volume One. You'll find a print book of Volume Two, and you'll find something else called the Ecology of Souls Companion. And the Ecology of Souls Companion is, in a lot of ways, non-essential. And what I mean by that is, number one, if you have the ebook, you have all the endnotes and you have all the the references in there, right? Um, and if you have the print books and you don't want to buy the companion, the companion is available for free on joshuacutchen.com. You can navigate your way to my website, go to the Ecology of Souls companion page. It is on there in substantively the same form as the companion. The logic behind this was that the companion is like 300 and some on pages, right? And it's just appendices, endnotes, bibliography. (laughs) I didn't want to add any, any more to the actual physical copies of the book. But at the same time, if you buy books, you deserve to have access to the references. You know, you yeah. should see where it's coming from. So you can either buy the ebook, have all it taken care of, buy the print books, and go to the PDF on my website. Or I made it available in print if you're a print completionist like me who likes to have stuff in meat space. And yep. surprisingly, it looks like about a third of the people that have bought um, both volumes have also bought the companion just to have it all in one physical space. That's awesome. So that kind of, yeah. kind of warms my heart, you know, as someone who has a thing for endnotes. Yeah. Um, now here's here's time for the funny anecdote. Um, <laughs> there was a slight change to the cover that uh, that Mike Cleland, who helped me with uh, the layout and everything, wanted to make. Mike's Mike's a very uh, fastidious guy when it comes to that sort of thing. Um, so I, I I changed it, but in the meantime, I'd already uploaded the Ecology of Souls PDF to my website. So when the companion went back through review, it flagged me for plagiarizing myself. <laughs> The yes. algorithm, the algorithm did its thing and said, "Oh, it looks like the exact same things on a website. Can you provide documentation of an agreement with the author?" And I'm like, I, "No." <laughs> so I pulled it. I pulled it. I went back and forth. I had two different work tickets on Amazon. They weren't super responsive, but I pulled it. It went through the uh, the approval process, and then Mike and I switched around the order of things, and it's back on the website. So okay. it looks Excellent. different, but it's the same thing. So. 
again, super probably shouldn't be as confusing <laughs> as it is, but that's 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 where you can get Ecology of Souls, and that's what you can get if you want to pick it up. Um, as far as uh, future appearances, the only one that I have on the books right now that's left is over Labor Day weekend, and that's at Dragon Con in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, okay. They have me on a couple panels, and they have me doing something called an hour with Joshua Cutchin, which is like the wow. most narcissist. Like, I'm sure people are going to read that and be like, oh, yeah, Josh, think a lot of yourself. Like, <laughs> they, just, they just told me what the name of it was. I have no idea. So I have no idea what that's going to look like. You know, if there are four people there, we'll just sit around and have a chat, I guess. Um, yeah. But anyway, so that's 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 my my one and only upcoming appearance. But you can stay tuned for all my updates at joshuacutchin.com, J-O-S-H-U-A-C-U-T-C-H-I-N, just like a cut on your chin.com. Excellent. And all links to everything will be in the show notes. So if you want any of, you know, if you want to go experience or keep up with anything Josh is doing, just hit those show notes and you'll have the full list. Oh, and as one last thing, I will say that um, uh, Amazon does not allow you to bundle copies for a discount. Um, so anyone who comes straight to me and wants me to mail them signed autographed copies, if you buy both or all three with the companion, um, I do offer a discount that you can't get on Amazon. So Excellent. Yeah. And they, what would be the best way to contact you for that? Um, through my website. Okay. That's awesome. the best way. They'll help me keep track of it. Yep. Excellent. All right. Thank you so much for doing this, man. This was, this was like one of the best talks I've had in a long time. Well, it was a pleasure. And, you know, it's something, again, to, to invoke Mike for like the third time in this conversation. <laughs> um, you know, he said to me a while back, he says, if, you, if, you, if you're talking about UFOs and within, you know, 15 minutes, you don't get into ta- talking about God or the nature of the universe or the nature of reality or something probably not the best conversation you could be having about ufos and that's that's always proven true in in my experience like it really gets to the fundamentals of of what we experience and and this was one of those conversations so thank you so much jordan it's been a pleasure absolutely thank you thank you thank you from the bottom of our weird possibly alien maybe ghostly probably cryptid hearts for listening We absolutely love having the chance to discuss all these wild creatures and events every week, and it's your continued attention that allows us to carry on. And if you want more, you can support us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. It's there you will find bonus content behind the scenes. We're just keeping up on our day to day and maybe some swag along the way. It is our way to show thanks for your support and do everything we can to provide you with as much content as possible. Again, that's patreon.com forward slash campfire tales of the strange and unsettling. With that said, we want to get to know each and every one of you. So please come and check us out on all the socials at campfire.tales.podcast on Instagram and Facebook at campfire T-O-T-S-A-U on Twitter and you can also visit our website at campfirepodcastnetwork.com. If you love the show, please rate and review it. It's what truly helps us continue bringing your weekly dose of the strange and unsettling. And lastly, we do have our merch store. You can find the link available on all of our social media or via our link tree. Show your support. Buy a shirt. Buy a sticker. Buy a blanket. Buy a pillow. Anything that you want to rep campfire tales of the strange and unsettling and that's it until next time i'm ryan i'm jordan and remember campers stay weird
and trust in the unknown.